listening to audio from Oasis Church in Winter Haven, Florida. For more information about Oasis Church, please visit our website at www.oasischurchwh.org. And thanks so much for listening. Luke chapter 9 is where we are going to be again today. It's a turning point in Luke's story, a really major turning point, if we can say it that way. He's painting the picture for those to see and to to begin developing about who this person is that, that was announced by angels, that was conceived of the Holy Spirit on this little virgin girl that had never uh, never been married, never been with a man, and, and, and now she's with child. She has this this miraculous birth, and, and, and these angels sing, and these, these folks come and, and worship from the fields, and then he grows up with, with a strange authority about him. And, and, and it was something that his, his uh, mom and stepdad weren't, weren't really knowing what to expect, but he had this, this authority even as a, a young man in the temple with the teachers. And then we, we get a, a little brief snippet of, and, and he grew up. And then he began a ministry, and, and, and it seems out of nowhere he began to preach and teach, gathering to himself a, a, a small crew of disciples, of followers, uh, made up of 12 guys who would have been the most unlikely of characters to be chosen by someone who wanted to have a successful ministry in that place and at that time. But yet, those are the ones he chose, and he began to teach and to preach and to say things about the kingdom of God. And how that the kingdom of God that, that the Israelites had been expecting and hoping for through the promises made to Abraham and, and then passed on through Isaac and Jacob and then made more full to David and then given a, a bizarre twist to the prophet Jeremiah. They had been anticipating this kingdom that would be inaugurated by one called Messiah, the anointed one, that one that God had promised way back when. They were anticipating him, and now Jesus is proclaiming that the kingdom of God is at hand. It's near. It's ready to be revealed. And he's doing miracles, things that people can't explain, things that they're seeing with their own eyes, and they're, they're saying to themselves, who is this guy? In fact, even the twelve at some, at some pretty major events had said that same thing. Who is this man that we're with? at that particular time, that can command the winds and the waves, and they've got to obey. Who who is this we're dealing with? Today, Luke brings that question that's building in the minds of the first readers, I'm sure, that are reading this story, maybe some fairly unfamiliar with with the Israelite traditions and, and, and they're having to get help understanding this. Luke's bringing them to a, a semi-climax. There, there's one big one to come. This is, a, this is where you're not quite to the halfway point in your novel, but you know something's got to give because things are confusing. You don't know how all this fits. And then the author kind of gives you a little bit of an insight behind the curtain. And you're kind of like, oh, and that causes you to keep reading. Oh, there's going to be more. I know this is going to explode here in just a second. And that's what Luke does in his story. He gives a little bit of a glimpse, as we'll see, just following in Luke's account, Jesus taking five loaves and two fish, not enough to feed me and Charlie. 
well, probably not enough to feed me, but me and Charlie could share and we'd still be looking for Burger King. A very little amount of food Jesus took and broke and distributed and fed at least 5,000 men, not even counting the wives and the women and the children that must have been in that crowd. Jesus took out of nothing and provided to their satisfaction. Luke told us that they ate and they ate until they were satisfied, until they were full, until the disciples were bringing more and they were just like, Peter, I can't, man. Thank you so much. I couldn't hold another bite if I wanted to. And then they gathered up having fed over 5,000, maybe double, triple that number and gathered up 12 large baskets full of leftovers. Who does this? Who is capable of providing this kind of answer to that kind of problem? Luke's going to answer it. But he's going to answer it just, just in a little small circle. We come to, to verse number 18 of Luke chapter 9. If you've got you version, it'll be in the live events. If you haven't downloaded the Oasis Church app. You need to do that. It's on the Google store. It's on the Apple store. The notes are in there. It's under the Sunday tab. You can also go on in the app and you can tell it that you want to receive notifications. So a really important stuff comes out, then it'll send you like a text message. So make sure you get your app and you can follow along or you can bring your Bible. That's what I do every week. I just bring mine. I like paper. I just like to have it laid out flat. But we're going to look at God's Word. Luke chapter 9 verse number 18. Now it happened that he was praying alone. If if you've got a paper copy of the Scripture, then you know in verse 17 above it, it says, and they ate and were satisfied, and and uh, what was left was picked up in 12 baskets of of broken fragments. It's right after the the feeding of the 5,000 plus. Well, Matthew and Mark tell us that a lot more happened between that event of feeding the 5,000 and the, and, and the things that are going to happen right here. But see, that's what's so cool about the, the gospel writers is that they weren't, they weren't tied down to putting things absolutely in chronological order. No, they were given freedom to write this story and to paint this picture, not in a false way. Luke leaving out things that Matthew and Mark put in the story does not make the story wrong. Luke's just jumping into a point that he's trying to make. And please, please, please don't forget as Luke is writing these things with excitement and and feeling compelled to do so, please don't forget that God the Holy Spirit is sovereignly superintending it all. Allowing Luke to think these things and to be excited and write this story as he would write it all the while Pinning the very words that God wanted heard by Theophilus, who Luke was writing to, and to Ty, and to Chad, and John, and Kevin, who are reading it in 2021. God inspired these words. Luke jumps ahead. It's like he he can't stand it. He's been building this picture, this question. He's been building this wonder. Who is this? Folks are asking, who is this? Herod had just expressed, who is this in Luke's story? And Luke says, now it happened. 
As he was praying alone, Matthew and Mark again reveal that these events happened to the north of Galilee in a place called Caesarea Philippi, 1,500 feet above sea level, up into the mountains where they were escaping the crowds just for a little while. You remember last week they tried to escape the crowds, but they couldn't. The crowds followed them, and now they work their way up into the mountains, having fed and satisfied. They've done more ministry, and now they find themselves in the region of Caesarea Philippi, about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. Now, it happened... That as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them a question. Who do the crowds say that I am? The crowds. Who is it Jesus is talking about? He's talking about the mass of folks that are following him from place to place. Oh, I'm sure it started out with a little meager following, those that he had chosen by name, he had invited and and, and called into his inner circle. But as he went from city and town and village, the, the crowd began to build. And he would say some things that intrigued some. And if he did a miracle, I'm just imagining that that different ones are looking at their family and they're just saying, hey, look, tell the boss that I'm not going to make it this week. I got to go see where this guy's going. I got to go hear some more about what he's saying. And as Jesus went and as he continued to teach and as he continued to do things that no one could explain, that crowd just began to build and build and build. Some of you have seen Forrest Gump, as he got to the place in the story where Forrest begins to run across the nation, and he's going back and forth. For what reason? Well, he said, for no particular reason at all, I just started running, and then when I got to one coast, I turned around and ran the other way, and then he got out in the middle of nowhere. You remember? He's in the middle of nowhere. It was beautiful scenery, though, but he's in the middle of nowhere, and he stops, and he turns around, and what do the people do? They stop, and they're like, What's he doing? That's the kind of crowd that Jesus had gathered. Except, I'm I'm thinking it's probably way more. He just fed over 5,000 folks in Luke's story. So there are a number of people following Jesus. Jesus' popularity was peaking. He would have been, in our day, an Instagram phenom. This guy would have just been tearing it up. On social media, he wouldn't have probably had even Facebook. But that's not the point. The crowds are following, and Luke says that Jesus turns to the disciples. I find it interesting that he's praying. They're probably arguing. I I don't know, but I'm just imagining what they would be doing. They were probably arguing, or they were fighting, or they were probably saying things like, Jesus, he's touching me, he's looking at me. If you've ever traveled with your children, I'm just imagining what Jesus must have had to put up with. He turns to them and he says, answer me this. You've been out amongst the crowds. You've heard what they're saying. You, you, you've seen, and, 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 and you're, you've got the, the, the ear. The ear. You're, you're hearing what they're saying. Who do the crowds say that I am? And they replied, verse 19, some of them are saying that you are John the Baptist. In fact, I think this is probably the most popular theory. Why? Because... John the Baptist had been like the most 
interesting man that had been on the scene for decades and decades and decades until Jesus come along. But when John the Baptist stepped up and started preaching, John was a weird dude. John wore weird clothes. John lived out. He was homeless. He just lived out amongst the stars. He ate bugs. I'm imagining his hair was long and his beard was everywhere. He wore like just animal skins. And and John was just, John was weird, y'all. And he stand up and began to preach, and folks came out to hear what he had to say. And John was saying, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's near. It's ready to be revealed. And entrance into the kingdom of God demands, class, tell me it's an R word, and he said it over and over. It's called what? Repentance. Oh. What are you talking about, John? What are you talking about? Repentance. Your heart has to be right in order to enter into this kingdom, and that heart requires repentance. And John gathered quite a crowd. In fact, a lot of folks thought he was the promised Messiah because of the message he was preaching. Well, John apparently liked to meddle because as as Herod uh, Antipas was driving by with his wife Herodias, John just took an opportunity to say, and by the way, Herod, ruler in Galilee, you're sinning by marrying that woman. Yeah, that woman was your brother's wife, and you caused her, you seduced her, made her leave your brother, and now you married her, and it's wrong, and it's sin, and God don't like it. Well, being that Herod had a little bit of power, he had John arrested, put in prison, but he liked him. He was an interesting guy. Until one night at a drunken party, Herod foolishly said to his stepdaughter, if you'll dance for us, I'll give you whatever you want up to half of my kingdom. And she danced and she said, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Well, shoot, now I got to do it. So off with his head came John to to the party, head on a platter. John is dead. But then Jesus, after him, begins to gather even larger crowds. And these crowds are moving from place to place. And this man, Jesus, is doing things that John never did. He's doing miracles that John never performed. And so even Herod, we learn in verse 7 through 9 of this same chapter, Herod is hearing in the palace about this superstar rabbi who's doing things and saying things that nobody can explain. And Herod's wondering, who in the world is this? I'm afraid this might be John the Baptist have come to life to haunt me. That's what Herod was thinking. And Herod sought to see Jesus. I imagine he sent an invitation after invitation for Jesus to come and speak personally to Herod. Jesus puts him off and puts him off. That prevailing theory now is spreading throughout the region. And so I think the, the disciples, the, the, what they were going to be apostles, looked at Jesus and said, Well, most people, the scuttlebutt is, most people think that you're John the Baptist have come back to life or or have been reborn but that wouldn't work Jesus because y'all was related and he was born like six months and then you were born so could be, I don't know but the people they got these wild out ideas Some, most of them are saying they think you're probably having the spirit of John the Baptist and and then there are others they say there are a few others that that know the Old Testament 
And they know what Malachi 4, 5 says about when, when God is about to move in his kingdom process, he'll send prior to judgment the, uh, the, the, the prophet Elijah, someone with the spirit of Elijah in order to make way for, for what God is going to do. And there's a lot of folks, most people think you're John the Baptist, some kind of inhabitant, like you're possessed by him. But, but there are some out there that think maybe you're Elijah. Maybe you're the promised prophet to come that's going to talk about God's judgment to come. And, and then there are others that say you're just one of the Old Testament prophets. Matthew says that, that the disciples said that a lot of folks think that maybe you're Jeremiah. That maybe you're Jeremiah. Come back to life or the spirit of Jeremiah has inhabited you. That's what the folks are saying. They, they really don't know what to think about you. They're, they're confused. But, but they're faithful, Lord. I mean, they're curious, you know, and some of them are convinced of who they think you are, and, and, and they keep showing up, but they really, it's, it's kind of a mixed bag, Lord. You know, the crowds think a lot of things about Jesus. We, we live in a world that has a lot of theories about who Jesus is. Maybe a lot of folks will call him the Savior. A lot of folks will call him a prophet. A lot of folks will put him on the same plane with, with other historical religious figures like Muhammad. Yeah, he's a prophet, kind of like Muhammad. He's, a, he's the Christian equivalent of like Buddha, the Dalai Lama. Yeah, that's kind of who Jesus is. The world thinks a lot of things. But you know, even in the church... There's a lot of misunderstanding of the crowds in churches. I mean, we, we have some churches that are, that are filled each week with thousands of people. And I'd be willing to bet you if you were to hand them a paper and pencil and say, who do you think Jesus is? You'd get all kinds of answers, some that might even shock you. Jesus asked them this question to set up the next he said, who are the crowds saying that? What are you hearing? What's the popular theories? What, what, what do folks think about me and my identity in order to lead them to the most important question he's asked them yet? In fact, it's quite possibly the most important question everyone will ever answer. When Jesus looked at them, and then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? What, 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 what is it that they say? Wow, they've said a lot of stuff. Okay. And what about you? Who do you say that I am? The emphasis in Luke's writing is on the you. It's out front in the sentence structure to emphasize that Jesus is pointing this question and it's plural. We would say, y'all. Who, who do y'all say that I am? That's the Southern Standard Translation. We've heard what they say, but what say you? Peter answered, the Christ of God. Now, Jesus asked a plural question, and he didn't say, let's go down the road like a teacher would. 
I'm going to ask a question. Now, let's go down the road. We'll start with you. Now, you answer, you answer, you answer. Not like a jury. You know, what did you say? Do you confirm? I, jury number one, do also confirm. Didn't do that. He just throws the question out. And, and it seems because Peter is just notorious for answering for that, that he's the one who doesn't mind talking in front of people. I mean, he's the one who doesn't mind. And Peter don't mind saying anything. Peter say all kinds of fun stuff that he ends up regretting. But I think Jesus answers, asks this question. And he just throws it out there. And I'm just, I'm imagining them look, looking at everybody. And Peter's just like, you, you. well, Lord, we, we, we've been talking. And... Uh, we think you're the Christ of God. You know, there's, there's a lot in what he said right there. Ma- Matthew 16, 16, Matthew records it. Not only that he says that you are the Christ, Matthew remembers, because Matthew was one of the 12, Matthew remembers Peter saying, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter got real specific about what they thought about Jesus. He got real specific, the Christ of God, the Christ, the Son of the living God, Christos, Christ. It's, it's a Greek word that translates the Hebrew, Mashiach. You know what that kind of sounds like, don't you? Sounds a lot like our English word, Messiah. Christos, Mashiach, the Greek and the Hebrew both mean anointed one. Or the one anointed. We believe that you are God's unique anointed. In Israel's history, they identified anointing with establishing a king. When the next king would take the place, they would come to the, to the, to the, to the new king and they would take oil and they would pour the oil. They would anoint that king with oil. And in their minds, that symbolized for them the hand of God on the leader of the people that would stand and represent them as their champion, so to speak. As their spokesperson, they were being anointed by the people. But even bigger, they were seeing him as God's anointed. You'll find in Samuel, when, when uh, David is on the run from King Saul, his, his men are saying, why, why don't you just take the opportunities that God has given you to kill Saul? Be done with this, man. You're the king. He's anointed you. And, and we could just step into this if you just... Kill the man when God gives you the opportunity next time. And David says, I'll not lift my hand to God's anointed. Even though David had felt the oils run down his hair onto his shoulders and probably in his beard and down his shirt, even though he knew that Samuel the uh, prophet had said that he would be king, David respected the fact that Saul still was king. And David says, I'll not put my hand. Now, God can handle Saul whenever and however he wants to. He can establish me as king whenever, if he still wants to. But I'm not going to touch God's anointed because it was important. He was set apart. 
And so when they thought about Messiah, this promise that God had began by making to, to uh, I, I'm going to argue he made a promise to Adam and Eve that then kind of morphed and, and that got made to Noah, but that, that I'm not going to argue. The, the covenants begin with Abraham, promises that were being made, how God was going to bless the people and the world through this nation that he would establish through Abraham. And when it gets to David, the promises uh, are involving a king, someone who's going to come in his line, someone who's going to establish his kingdom, God's kingdom forevermore on the throne of David. And so the prophets talking about this anointed one had come to the realization in their mind that Messiah would ultimately be king of Israel. So their expectation was Messiah to come as king, God's anointed, to move all world powers out of the way, establish this royal kingdom where uh, Israel would enjoy the land without oppression and that all the kingdoms would be subservient to Messiah. I'm going to let you in on a little hint. I believe as you read your New Testament, you're going to find that very thing to come about. That's going to happen. Jesus is going to rule. But as Messiah, in the first advent, his first coming, that was not the thing. But the disciples' understanding of who Jesus was was absolutely correct. They were saying, in effect, we believe that you, Jesus, are God's chosen, anointed Messiah... God's beloved son and rightful king of Israel. Bingo. That's exactly who I am. In Matthew 16, 17, Matthew remembers Jesus looking at Peter and saying, and don't think for one second that somebody on this earth revealed that to you. God revealed that to you. God allowed you to be able to see that because all those folks are confused. None of those folks figured it out yet, but God has revealed my identity to you. Then verse 21 says, And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. What, what, what are you doing, Jesus? This, this is the big reveal. I mean, this is, hey, we're, we're only nine chapters in, but hey, we've discovered you're the one. We need to be shouting this from the mountaintops. We need to be proclaiming this in the city square. Jesus, why didn't you wait till today to send us out two at a time? Because that's a better message. It's a way better message to say the king is here. He's at Caesarea Philippi. Come and meet him. Come see him. Jesus said, I don't want you doing that. You remember he had gone into the room of a young lady that he had intended to go and to heal, but on the way had died. You remember Jesus going into that room? You remember how he told everybody to get out and took only three disciples and mom and dad into the room, and Jesus reached over and touched the dead girl's hand and said, Arise. And she got up. You, you remember when that happened not, not too long ago when we were saying that Jesus has power and authority not over nature and demons but, but also disease and death? You remember what he told the mom and dad? He goes, now, now don't go tell nobody this. 
Are you kidding me? Don't go tell anybody this. Why in the world would Jesus not want the folks to know? Didn't you just ask us who the people say that you are? And and didn't you want them to know who you are? I think what Jesus is doing here, it's not spelled out in the text, but I think what Jesus is doing here is he's trying to squelch this misunderstanding, this misguided understanding of the mission of Messiah, and he's trying to stop a a, a revolt against Rome. But just think about it. Israel has been under the oppression of the Babylonians, under the oppression of the the Medes and the Persians, under the oppression, the occupation of the Greeks, and now they're under the oppression and occupation of the Romans. And they've got the king in their presence that's to vanquish all the enemies of God's people and reestablish the kingdom. Are you kidding? The folks would go nuts if they knew that the king who was here to set up his earthly rule was in their presence. But that's not why Jesus was here. And so he says, in effect, yes, boys, you got it. That's exactly who I am. Now, first and foremost, you can't go tell anybody. But I got to, Lord. At least let me go back and tell my family. Because they looked at me and they said, you're crazy for leaving the family business to follow this guy. Nobody knows who he is. He didn't come out of any major school of rabbinical teaching. And you're going to leave everything behind. Lord, I got to go back and tell my wife. I got to go back and tell her mama. Because she's been talking about me ever since I've been gone. She's like, no, no, you just leave us alone. You just keep following me. Look, look, look. I need to help you understand my mission. You see, if you go out there and you tell the people that the king is here, they're going to want to forcibly set me up as king, and they're going to call on, they're going to draw the line for the Romans, and the Romans are going to come line up in a way that's not God's plan for right now. In fact, if you were to read John chapter number 6, you'll discover that John remembered after Jesus fed those 5,000, that everybody looked around and went, whoa, 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 whoa. When was the last time that God provided for his people bread out of nothing? It happened in the wilderness when Moses was with them. And, and Moses said that there was going to be a prophet that was going to come like him. We think this is the prophet. And they tried to take him and establish him as king by force. And this is one of those instances where Jesus just kind of maneuvered his way out of the crowds. And I think the folks were like, hey, where? Where did he go when he was gone? Why? Because that wasn't God's plan. That wasn't God's intention this go-round. And so he says, I don't want you to go tell them because they don't understand why I'm here presently. Let me tell you why I'm here presently, and then hopefully you'll understand why I don't want you to go share. He said, don't tell this to anyone, verse 22, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things. The Son of Man must be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes 
the Son of Man must be killed. And on the third day, the Son of Man must be raised. Now, Jesus has already referred to himself as the Son of Man. He, he started out in chapter number 4 and chapter number 6 of the story. He's, he's identifying himself as the Son of Man. And usually when he does this, it has to do with his authority. The Son of Man has authority, he says in chapter 4, so that you'll know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I say to you, stand up, take your bed, and walk home after he had been dropped down into the house. And that's exactly what he did. Because the folks were looking around going, who can say you've forgiven sins? Well, anybody can say you can for, your sins are forgiven, but only the one who can also tell this man crippled from birth to get up and walk has the goods to say his sins also are forgiven. He also used it in chapter number 6, I believe it is, when talking to the Pharisees and the scribes who had asked him, why is it you think you can do things that are unlawful on the Sabbath? We've taken God's law and we've fleshed out what it means to do no work. That was way too ambiguous in the Old Testament. We've got it all figured out. You can't do this. You can't do that. You can't walk this far. You can't cook this thing. You can't eat here. You can't go there. You can't be these things. We've put this all in. Why do you think that you have the right to disobey, well, our laws, but our laws that are God's laws? And, and Jesus said, you need to understand that the Son of Man has authority over the Sabbath. What he was saying to these well-learned cats was, I made the Sabbath. I know what it's there for. I know what can and can't be done. My Father is always working and so am I breaking my own law, boys. You need to figure it out. So he uses this term again, the Son of Man. Where did this come from? It came from Daniel chapter 7. Daniel's interpreting a dream, I believe, of King Nebuchadnezzar about this one who stood up and had the appearance as one like the Son of Man. It's the same one, that stone that came and crushed the image of Babylon and, and, and Medo-Persia and Greece and Rome and whatever the feet are, iron and clay, whatever that is. It destroyed all of those earthly kingdoms. And then this one like the Son of Man stood up victorious. Behold, the stone was rolled away to reveal what? An empty tomb. To reveal what? Victory. Absolute, total, complete victory. The Son of Man, the victorious promised one, the anointed one that would usher in all of God's promises the way God intends them. We gotta be, we gotta be careful we don't, we don't put God in our box, okay? Because God's done a lot of stuff throughout the ministry of Christ that, and, and, and others that didn't look exactly like they were expecting, right? So let's hold these things loosely. But God's promises are going to come to completion. But first, 
the Son of Man, the victorious one, has got to suffer. I don't want to make this word walk on all fours, as Chuck Swindoll says, a lot. Meaning, I don't want to put too much into it. But I can't get around the fact that this word day, this translated must, it is a word that that typically, normally means this has to happen. This, This has to happen before this. But before I, before I arrive here, I've got to go. Uh, you remember, I think we'll get to it here in a little while, where it says he told his disciples that he must go through Samaria. Well, he didn't have to go through Samaria. He could have went around Samaria just like everybody else. But no, he must. He, he had to. It was on his agenda. Jesus is saying, look, I'm Messiah, yes. But victory, yep. Rule, yep, yep, it's all there. But before that, on on God's agenda, the Son of Man must suffer. Think about some of the things that he suffered. The same people that were declaring him the Son of David were in just a few hours calling for his blood. One of his own chosen 12 sought an opportunity to push his own agenda and betrayed him. Beaten, slapped, stripped, naked. That's the part about the crucifixion that we don't like to talk about. No no loincloth. The Romans wouldn't give someone that kind of dignity. They crucified you naked. He suffered. He must suffer and be rejected by who? The chief priests and the elders, the, the ones who knew the Old Testament best. The ones who knew exactly who he was based on the text that they so proudly communicated week after week. They knew who he was and they chose to deny it because he didn't measure up to their expectations. He was rejected. He was put to death in one of the most brutal ways known to man. But guys, listen. But he must raise, be raised from the dead. See that, we, we were talking this morning. It was kind of, it was kind of a laughable moment. That, that song, that last one we sang, Man of Sorrows. You know, we practiced it and Eugene was like, I don't, I don't, that, that last verse, it gets me because we normally sing that on Good Friday. And we leave out that last verse because on Good Friday, it's about remembering the cross. We're like, hey, let's just, let's don't talk about the tomb. Let's wait a couple of days. Let, let's give our minds something to think about. So that on Sunday morning, we can celebrate the resurrection. We were just, and I just made the comment as we were saying it. I don't remember. It's so, well, should we just leave it out? And I just said, jokingly, I said, we can't leave him on the cross. Okay, we got to finish this song out. Can't leave him up there on the cross because he ain't up there on the cross no more. He's not even in the tomb anymore. He's victoriously raised from the dead. The Messiah has come out victorious. Now, he's at the right hand of the Father waiting on what? Well, I'd, I'd just quick be quite honest with you. I don't know. I'd just soon he come on because I don't like the way things are. But he's waiting and he's working. And he's establishing 
whatever his will is through the, the will of the Father, by the power of the Spirit, and we get to be part of it. Hallelujah. But Jesus said, all that's got to happen before the rule and the reign. I got to suffer. I got to be rejected. I got to die. I'll be raised from the dead. Matthew 16, 23 to 20, uh, 22 to 23 tells us it's kind of comical. Peter comes to Jesus and he pulls him aside and he's like, well, now, Lord, let's talk about this, okay? Because I'm thinking that whole death thing is not a way to go, okay? Let's figure it out. Let's go another way around. And what does Jesus say to Peter? He says, get behind me, who? Satan. He said, Peter, you know, just like five minutes earlier, you were saying things revealed to you by the Father himself. And now you're speaking the words of the liar. So scurry along. Listen to what I'm saying. Jesus says, this has got to happen. Why has it got to happen? Y'all know the answer. You read it? Let's say it. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Why? Why did he suffer? Me. You. Broken in your sin, incapable of changing your destiny. He stepped into our world and he took on our sin. And by his stripes, we can be healed. Isaiah 53. He bore our sin. He paid our debt. And then he came out of that grave completely victorious. Amen? You know what's even more strange than the agenda Jesus gave to the disciples about his messianic mission? You know what's even stranger than that? what he's going to say to them that we're going to talk about next week about how we follow him. They're scratching their heads wondering how this suffering and, and rejection and death and resurrection. I, I, I don't get it, Lord. Well, then you're really not going to get this. So make sure you're back next week because we're only halfway done with this that Luke has let us see behind the curtain. But before we go, some lessons for the church. Faith in Jesus begins with the true confession of who he is. And why have we spent so much time on just a few verses today? It's because you cannot be a follower of Christ without a true confession of who Jesus is. It's just that important. A general belief in God is not the Christian confession. Though in our world, in our Western culture, someone says something about God, and we're going, hey, did you hear Brad Pitt's a Christian? Oh, wait, why did he say Because he thanked God for all his blessings. I don't know Brad Pitt, obviously, right? Because I've not been to any of his shindigs, right? I don't know his heart, but, but I know saying something about God does not make him a Christian. That's not the Christian confession. Just a general confession of Jesus being the Savior is not the Christian confession. 
There's a lot of folks who are interested in Jesus, have the T-shirt, put the bumper sticker on back, even have a screensaver and a little cat picture with a Bible verse on it at their workplace. That don't make them a Christian. Faith in Jesus begins with a true confession of who Jesus is. Let's just go down. The, let's go down. Let's, let's talk about it. I'm not going to defend these this morning. We could and we will eventually. All true Christians must have a true confession of Jesus. Number one, he is the promised Christ, the Messiah, the King of the Old Testament. He is everything that they were looking for. That's who he is. And the disciples at this point knew this and they confessed it. He is, number two, the unique Son of God. And they knew this as well at this time. He's the unique Son of God, not who's going to suffer, be rejected, die, and be raised. He is the unique Son of God who suffered, died, and was raised. And in A.D. 40, the council at Nicaea codified that in the creed that identified Jesus as the crucified and risen one, the unique Son of God. Number three, He is God the Son. There's a difference. I know there's not a difference in Him, but we talk about the Son of God we think about his relation to the Father in his incarnation. But when we call him God the Son, we think about him in his relation to the Godhead in his eternality. He is God the Son, eternal, co-equal with the Father and the Spirit. And the disciples had no idea about this yet, but they would eventually. And this was codified in the Nicaea, I'm sorry, I said A.D. 40, that was the Apostles' Creed first, and then 325 at the Council of Nicaea, it was codified that he's the eternal God the Son, co-equal with the Father and the Spirit. We don't stop there. Who is he? He is the God-man. He is the Savior. He is God the Son, but He was born and He is human just like you and I. No different than us, except He did not sin, and yet He remains God. How can God be God and man at the same time? We're going to say, I don't know, on the count of three. One, two, three. I know you don't. They don't either. But they came to this conclusion in 451 A.D. at a place called Chalcedon, and they defined what it meant for God the Son to be both human and divine, all at the self-same time. And then lastly, He is the exclusive means through which one is reconciled to God. This is what will get you canceled. This is what will get you laughed at and possibly fired at work. This is what will get you lost accounts. It's not that you believe in Christ. The world don't care about that. We used to think that we would be persecuted because of what we believe. That's not why we're going to be persecuted. Here's why you're going to be canceled. Because you say Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life. 
that no one comes to the Father except through him. Well, you're just being mean. No, I'm not. I didn't say it. I'm just repeating it. And guess what? For God so loved you. You matter because he demonstrates his love for you in this. While you're still sinner, Christ died for you. He loves you, but he's the only way. I'm a follower of Jesus. Okay, good. Tell me about your Jesus. Who is he? Because it's absolutely imperative that a Christian have a true confession of who Jesus is. And we've got to evaluate every teacher, church, ministry, everything that that claims the name of God, everything that claims the name of Christ on the basis first and foremost of what did they say about Jesus. That's why you'll study and, and, and you'll get to know a little bit about the Jehovah's Witnesses and you'll go, whoa, wait a minute. They say they're Christian. They're not. Why? Because they don't believe in the eternality of Christ. They don't believe that he's God the Son. They'll tell you a bunch of stuff, but that ain't going to be one of them. They'll confuse you. Just don't think it's rude. Just go, uh, you, you with Watchtower? Yeah, I'm not really sure why I don't agree, but I know that you don't believe in the eternal God the Son. They go, oh, yes, we do. Okay, sir. Is Jesus God just like the Father and the Spirit? Well, if you've got 20 minutes, I don't. I got two. I'm being gracious. Well, you know, we could, thank you. Go have a great day. Get, get, give a man a couple bucks, get a drink. You know, he's probably thirsty. Give him a water out of your refrigerator, but he don't know Jesus. And neither do the Latter-day Saints. You know, they just don't. And neither do the, do, does Islam and, and neither does anyone else who claims a, a way to God. The true God. You're just being mean, Kevin. I promise you I ain't. I promise you God loves everybody and wants to make them all a part of his family. But that ain't happening apart from a true confession of Jesus. Agreed? Let's stand together. I'm going to leave you with a question and I'm going to pray for you. You know what the question is, don't you? I don't even have to ask it, but I'm going to. Who do you say he is? And if you say, Pastor Kevin, 